This week's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Convenient, secure, and affordable online counseling anytime, anywhere. Go to BetterHelp.com story, complete their questionnaire to get matched with a licensed professional counselor and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed on an unlimited basis. Go to BetterHelp.com story. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they I it felt, felt I this right. I was so and I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week, we're bringing you stories of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill from two different perspectives, a local scientist's and a local fisherman's. Both of these stories recorded at our February 2017 show at Club 44 at the Superdome in New Orleans, Louisiana. The show was produced in partnership with Sea Image and the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative and held in conjunction with their annual Gulf of Mexico Oil Spill and Ecosystem Conference. Find out more at usf.edu oil. Our first story this week is from scientist Estelle Robichon. In the spring of 2010, I was deep in the throes of graduate school at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Don't hate. And mid to late April was finals. So insert biannual existential crisis here. But in all seriousness, I was really enjoying my program on adaptive management of wetlands and watersheds. I finished up my regular coursework on April 19th, um, and the next week my then boyfriend and I were headed to England to visit his family. But before I could close the books on the semester, I still had to write a 20-page paper, take a final exam, and grade a stack of papers like a friggin' mile high. Um, Thus is the life of a graduate student, right? I heard on the news over the next couple of days that there had been an explosion on an oil rig and there was oil spilling out into the Gulf. But I knew that once I really started to pay attention to this story, I was not gonna be able to stop. So I didn't allow myself to read anything about what was going on. I kept my head buried in the sand and powered through my end of semester work. Before we hopped our plane to England, I ended up having a little bit of time to read some news, and I read a story about how the oil was moving closer and closer to Louisiana's coastline. It was headlined, Feds may set Gulf oil slick ablaze. And all I could think when I read that was, my Louisiane, my Louisiane. I just couldn't wrap my head around the idea that my homeland might be on the verge of possible destruction, that the places where my heart lies, those beautiful wetlands that shaped who I am and what I do so strongly might cease to exist. But I couldn't wallow. I still had to pack. So I swallowed my tears and carried on. But my grief for the Gulf had begun. 
Our first night in London, we went down to the pub to have a few pints with some of Will's former colleagues. And knowing I was from Louisiana and my work was in wetlands, one of his friends asked me if I knew anything about this oil spill in the Gulf. Only what I've heard in the news, I said. I told him what little I did know and admitted I hadn't had a lot of time to keep up with the story before our trip. I told him with the incredulity that only a grad student can possess, uh, that I was a little bit in disbelief that they hadn't figured out how to stop the oil yet, because frankly, oil, oil spills happen in the Gulf all the time. This friend told me he had read a story that day saying that this could be the largest oil spill ever in the US, possibly one of the largest ones ever in the world. I don't remember exactly how I responded to that, but as the magnitude of what was happening began to sink in, I started to get a sinking feeling in my stomach. And I was a little embarrassed at my flippancy and that I didn't know more. So the next day we got on one of those big cushy buses with Wi-Fi and reclining seats to head up to Oxford. And this was the perfect opportunity for me to really catch up on the news and learn about what was going on. You know, minimize the chances of sticking my foot in my mouth again. So I read a couple of stories about the current situation and by the third one or so, I started kind of feeling queasy and hot and I was sweating and my eyes weren't focusing really well, I really didn't feel good. Will suggested I might be getting car sick from reading on the bus, but I've never had a problem reading in a moving vehicle. But I shut my laptop and closed my eyes and tried to relax. I calmed down a little bit, felt a little better, but that queasy sick feeling wouldn't go away till much later. And this kept happening too not just over the following weeks, but for years. Anytime I would bring up news about the oil spill, I could read some, but eventually that sick feeling, and then sometimes chest clenching, and that feeling like you can't breathe, these feelings that I later realized were minor panic attacks would just take over. About three weeks later, we came back from England, and I immediately flew up to DC for a two-week workshop called Science Outside the Lab. It's a fantastic program through ASU's Consortium for Science Policy and Outcomes, and they bring science and engineering grad students up to DC to learn about science policy. My trip was cut short, though. A few days after I got up to DC, uh, Will took himself to the hospital with strange chest pains. The doctors in the ER had a hard time believing that anything could be seriously wrong with an otherwise healthy 29-year-old who just happened to have a really spicy curry for dinner that night. But this pain, which Will had been feeling off and on for weeks, was now constant. And it was unlike anything he had felt before. Eventually, they ran some tests. And they found that his thoracic aorta, the walls of it had weakened. For someone his age, the, the width of this main artery of the body is usually about three centimeters. Wills had ballooned out to over five. He had what is called the thoracic, uh, ascending 
aortic aneurysm. And there was a chance at any moment that his aorta could give way and the aneurysm would rupture. So as the events in the Gulf continued to unfold, as oil continued spewing from the wellhead, the situation becoming more and more dire each day, my personal life was turned upside down. Will had open heart surgery on June 2nd. It was one of the worst and best days of my life because the stress of that day uh, was way worse than anything you'll ever experience in your qualls. <laughs> and the relief and gratitude I felt when I heard the doctor say he did great is way better than hearing your chair say you passed. But despite the successful surgery, there was, he wasn't fully out of the woods yet. There was always a chance of a post-op complication, and there would be months of recovery, even if everything went well. So while many others, many of you, spent your summers watching the Gulf of Mexico and wondering if it would survive, I was spending my hours and days and weeks wondering if someone I loved would survive. And the stress and anxiety of Will's health crisis was all-consuming. I had blinders on to everything else for months after that. And the intense emotions that I felt during that time changed me as a person. They changed my brain. And I know that so many of you know exactly what I mean, because you witnessed the oil spill firsthand, or you went through Katrina. You know exactly what that's like. And you know that you, like the people and places around you, will never be the same again. Here and there, I would hear about the immediate and later effects of the spill on tourism and wildlife and the seafood industry. But despite the fact that I lived in Florida, I really wasn't directly impacted by the spill. And it was strange to be in the Gulf Coast and yet feel so far away from this unprecedented environmental disaster. But with everything going on in my life, it was really a welcome distance. Ultimately, Will fully recovered from his surgery. A scar running the length of his sternum, which was now held together by titanium wire. And Although we were brought much closer together during that time, we were both changed. And our relationship with each other changed. And about a year and a half after we faced Will's mortality together, we went our separate ways. And life went on. So fast forward a few years. It's the summer of 2015. I've been at the Environmental Defense Fund working on Louisiana coastal restoration for about two years in a position that was really created to sort out and make sense of all the different funding streams and entities that had developed in the wake of the spill. Like any job, there had been a learning curve, ups and downs over the years, positives and negatives, but all in all, it was a great job doing the kind of work that I had always wanted to do. At the time, though, I was really in a rut. At this point, the BP civil trial had been going on for nearly two and a half years. 
The third phase of the trial had just wrapped up in February following a ruling on the second phase that had lowered the maximum possible fines BP might pay. Even once there was a ruling on the third phase, there was still the possibility of an appeal. As for the natural resources damage assessment process, all we knew was that it was going to go on for a long time, possibly five to 10 more years of gathering data and doing assessments and studies. And I just felt like we were working so hard to push large-scale restoration forward here in Louisiana. And as most of you know, we need large-scale restoration here like yesterday. We knew there would be big money for restoration, but we had no idea when. And I just didn't feel like we could see the light at the end of the tunnel. Despite all the efforts of the state, of our NGO community, of our vocal stakeholders and industries, all the amazing scientists who work on coastal restoration, it seemed like despite all this, we were hitching our horses to a wagon with no wheels. Without money, large-scale coastal restoration wasn't going anywhere. And frankly, I was a little depressed about it. And then, when all seemed lost, when I was questioning everything we were doing, the global settlement with BP was announced. Hot dog! Over $13 billion for Nerd and Clean Water Act fines. I couldn't believe it. This totally changed the game. Having this money by no means meant that our work was done. It meant that our work had hardly even begun. I felt re-energized and excited and focused. And it wasn't just me. I saw it in so many of the people that I work with. We had certainty. We had knowledge. We knew there would be endless challenges, but we could see the light. Everybody knows the old adage that knowledge is power. And it's true. But knowledge does not lead only to power. When we had that certainty, when we knew how much money was coming and when, we were empowered. And for me, that empowerment, after years of grieving for the Gulf and my beautiful Louisiana homeland, that knowledge gave me hope. Thank you. That was Estelle Robichaud. Estelle, a native Louisianan, is Senior Restoration Project Analyst at the Environmental Defense Fund. Her research and background spanned wetlands, marine environments, and wildlife from Costa Rica to South Africa to South Siakos. Estelle advocates for the implementation of science-based restoration projects and leads project-related efforts for Restore the Mississippi River Delta. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. I want to tell you about a top-rated production by American Public Media, Brains On. It's a podcast for kids and curious adults. 
What makes this show special is that it is really driven by kids. They submit questions like, why do cats purr? How does the internet get to us? And do we all see the same colors? And then they interview real scientists and experts to find those answers. And sometimes that means talking to a food scientist or a snake handler, or maybe it means putting on a play about sound waves or writing songs about sleep. And it's real science, but the whole thing is filled with things like funny songs and mystery sounds to make it fun and entertaining for both kids and adults. Seriously, it's built to be enjoyable for parents, too, so you can listen with your kids. I know a lot of our listeners have kids. This is a unique, interactive way for the whole family to learn and laugh together. In June, they're launching a special series on cars that's perfect for listening on the road. So check it out. Subscribe to Brains On now on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. Our second story today is from fisherman Rob Campo. I'm a fourth-generation commercial fisherman. Um, I lived the oil, oil spill experience in uh, St. Bernard, Louisiana. And, um, you know, I, I am the owner of Campos Marina, me, my father, and my brother. Um, our business has been in business for 117 years. So uh, we've been around a while. Um, um, I come from an Islanios heritage. Um, that's what most people are in, St. in Lower St. Bernard Parish. So uh, here goes. On April the 20th of uh, 2010, um, no knowledge of any rig explosions or anything. Um, I do what I do most days. I also own two oyster boats, and I, um, I uh, farm 1,500 acres of oyster ground. So I leave out Shell Beach, my oyster boat, and I've got about an hour and 20-minute ride to my oyster leases out in Fallsmouth Bay. And I get over there, and I'm getting that way, and I'm watching a beautiful sunrise that morning. And uh, I get to my oyster leases, and, you know, we try to catch a 50-sack quota a day. That's we set ourselves on a, on a low limit. So we catch our 50 sacks, and we return back to Shell Beach, and... We unload the boat and head back to my, my dock and I was parking my slip. And uh, we're cleaning the boat and everything and I shut it down. I walk into my truck and I remember my phone ringing. I was still on a flip phone age back in <laughs> 2010. So I stopped and I grabbed my phone out of my pocket and I, I didn't recognize the number. And uh, it was a New York number. So I I said, man, this is, who the hell is this? So I answered the phone. I said, hello, and um, it's Ann Thompson on the phone. Ann Thompson, if you don't know who she is, she's from uh, NBC Nightly News. So she tells me, she says, um, man, she's going a mile a minute. So, so I'm trying to process all this stuff at the same time. So, you know, it's a long day. So anyway, she says, um, Hi, this is Ann Thompson from NBC Nightly News, blah, 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 blah. And she's going on and on and on and on about the, about the oil rig blowing up and, you know, how is this going to affect your business and blah, 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 blah. I said, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. I said, um, what oil rig blew up and where are we talking about? What's going on? She says, well, what do you mean exactly? I said, well, I have no knowledge of nothing, none of this. So she goes into telling me how to oil rig, how to, Deepwater Horizon rig blew up, had a massive explosion. Um, Eleven people were still missing, and they were trying to put out this massive fire. 
And, uh, and it gets worse than that. She said the pipe that the oil is coming out of is broke off at the surface of the Gulf of Mexico floor. So this is where my day starts to take a downward spiral. So I'm standing there. I'm, I remember standing in the middle of the street, and the wind is blowing out of the southeast about a 10 miles an hour breeze, and it's blowing right in my face. So I asked her, I said, how far offshore is this, um, is this, is this rig, this oil rig? And she said it's approximately 50 miles. So you do the math at 50 miles, um, 10 mile, 10, 15 mile an hour winds out the south, we got big trouble in Low China. So I get home, and I'm, you know, television just lit up with, you know, all this coverage of BP oil spill. So um, I'm, I'm looking at the television, and I'm trying to pay attention to the weather, because the weather is the most important thing right now. And it says, <clears throat> the weatherman says that it's going to be blowing 15 miles an hour. 10 to 15 miles an hour out of the southeast for the next two weeks. And I said, oh, this is not good. So shortly thereafter, she actually, when I was on the phone with Ann Tom, she wanted to do an interview. She wanted to know if I'd be up to do an interview. I said, sure. So we did the interview a couple of days later. But So I'm getting back to this television stuff, and I'm, I'm watching this. And uh, I remember, <clears throat> I remember saying, this wind coming out the southeast in April is really not unusual because in the month of April, you know, that's what, as fishermen, we look for, for to bring the brown shrimp larvae in and get up into the estuaries, and, you know, that's how we have our shrimping season, our first shrimping season, May season. Well, along comes with the shrimp larvae is coming this oil, and it's, as it's getting closer to shore, I remember President Obama giving the okay to start spraying disbursement on this oil. Well, they sprayed the disbursement and they sprayed it from aircraft and airplanes and, um, you know, and God knows other, other kind of ways they're spraying it out there to sink, <clears throat> to sink the soil. So what, in my mind, um, out of sight is out of mind. Well, um, we start seeing... We start seeing massive fish kills. Um, a lot of it was manhaden, mullet, um, speckled trout, bull reds, bull drums, and this is going on for miles. We saw dead sea turtles. We saw dead crabs that were full of eggs that was floating in these dead fish, uh, blue crabs. Um, we saw we saw dead porpoises about you know three or four feet long. There was quite a few of them, and I uh, said, "Man, this is this is just depressing." So, um, myself and the other fishermen, we, you know, we 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 want answers. <clears throat> so we go to we have a town hall meeting in Shelmet, Louisiana. We have a it's in St. Bernard. We have a town 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 hall meeting, and there's local, state, federal government agencies. There's BP representatives. And I swear to you, it was like a question that would come to these guys sitting up on a row of chairs like this on a stage. They would all be looking at each other, and nobody had an answer. It was kind of like a dog chasing his tail. It, it was pitiful.
so one of the BP reps that was there said, we're going to make this right. We're going to hire y'all's boats. So, we, so they did. We stretched out 160 feet of boom, oil boom, to try to contain this oil from getting into the marshes. So uh, they did, we did that. We put over 160 miles out. And daily we had to go out with our boats and maintain it. <clears throat> and due to the tidal, tide coming in and the strong winds, it, they, uh, it, the ropes would pop and we'd have to go put all the stuff back together and it, it was a nightmare. Needless to say, it was a nightmare, a real, real nightmare. And uh, still dead fish. Every day is dead fish, miles and miles and miles of dead fish. And as being an oyster fisherman, I'm looking at all these dead fish, and so if these fish are dead like this, our oysters don't have a shot. And they didn't. And it killed miles and miles of reefs. That was, that after Hurricane Katrina, was just so full of oysters, it was just unbelievable. The, the abundance of seafood that we had after Katrina was just, it was mind-blowing. Um, and it being a shrimper, also, uh, I, I could tell you this because I lived it. You know, we lost everything for Katrina, houses, um, business, everything. But the seafood was there. And we knew that we could survive. As long as we had seafood, we could survive. But, but now this comes along and all the seafood's dead. You know, we rebuilt, but we still got, we got dead seafood. <clears throat> so it's, you know, I, I, I like to think that I'm a strong person and I can handle a lot and I can endure, endure a lot. But to tell you, this was wearing me down. It was, it was getting the best of me. And working for them every day, you know, I'm seeing this. I mean, it was just, I couldn't do this in front of my crew. But, man, at night, I was just, it was just, it was killing me. And this is what happened to the oyster industry. It, it, you know, it was a combination of disbursement, oil, um, the river water that they turned loose out of the Bonacary spillway. It was, I guess it was a combination of all these things. And it's been nearly seven years, I guess, since this thing happened. And uh, I could tell you, I could take you to oyster reefs right now that haven't produced an oyster since this happened. And I don't know why. I can't explain it. Scientists don't know why. Biologists don't know why. Um, and it had not been for the oyster fishermen that's in St. Bernard Parish putting out uh, crushed concrete and, um, and limestone, we wouldn't have an oyster industry today. And, uh, you know, and, and what would Louisiana be without seafood? So Louisiana is near and dear to me. It's in my heart. I'm born and raised on these bayous all my life. Um, I tell people all the time that I have salt water in my veins. That's what my blood type is. It's salt water. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just, and again, you, Louisiana is just a unique spot, a unique place to live in. Um, I couldn't see myself doing anything else but fishing for a living. And I don't know what I would do without being on the bayous every day. And um, it's, it's hard to think and it's hard to process that you might have to go do something else. And, and, you know, 
It makes you mad. And at the same time, it, it makes you cry. It makes you, you know, you got all these emotions going through your mind. And uh, one thing I can tell you about Louisiana fishermen is they're very proud people. They're hardworking. They endure weather that no, most people wouldn't even go outside in. And uh, I've been out there, and I've done it myself a bunch of times. But at the end of the day, and I'll close with this, what makes me, what makes me do what I do is because Louisiana is home. The end. <laughs> That was Rob Campo. Rob is the owner of Campos Marina located in Shell Beach, Louisiana. He's a fourth generation commercial fisherman and the great grandson of the late Celestino Campo, the founder of Campos Marina, started in 1903. Campos Marina is the oldest family-owned business in St. Bernard Parish, and it's one of the top 10 oldest family-owned businesses that still exist today in Louisiana. He owns and operates his oyster business with two oyster boats and a farm of nearly 1,500 acres of oyster grounds. If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. If you sign up to donate $10 a month or more, we'll list your name on our show programs across the country. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, Simon's Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by me, Liz Neely, Aaron Barker, R.A. Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, and Nissa Greenberg, with help from Farah Ahmad, Ellie Chen, and Skylar Bear. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative for hosting these shows, and to everyone, scientist or otherwise, involved in the effort to clean up the Gulf. Thanks for listening. <laughs>